You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Why did I do my doctorate in neuroscience? At UCLA at the time, it was brain research. Everything we think about comes from our brains. If I could comprehend the brain, I thought, perhaps I can apprehend deep reality. Although I learned to do science and lots about the brain, there wasn't much apprehension. Over the years, I've studied physics to explore the universe as well as neuroscience to explore the mind. But I've largely ignored the foundations of neuroscience, biology, though biology, human biology, was my undergraduate major at Johns Hopkins. Biology offers its own set of big questions. What's life? What's language, morality, wisdom? What's race and gender? What's the origin and essence of religion? These seem like philosophical questions. That's why I should explore a new field of inquiry called philosophy of biology. What is philosophy of biology? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. I'd been planning to attend a conference at Notre Dame, the quest for consonants, theology, and the natural sciences. And when I read that, among those attending were several philosophers of biology, I had a new priority. I wanted to meet them. I go to South Bend, Indiana, where to start, I seek the British Canadian philosopher of science who pioneered philosophy of biology as a new field, Michael Roos. Michael, my life's interest has been in the philosophy of cosmology, philosophy of mind, and the philosophy of religion. I've not really taken an interest in the philosophy of biology, which has been one of your specialties. You've helped create this field. Tell me what I'm missing. (laughs) Well, it's not just philosophy of biology, is it? It's philosophy of science. And the simple fact of the matter is science and technology have such a huge role in our world today. And I, as a philosopher, turned, shall we say, almost naturally to this. There's been a long tradition. I mean, Aristotle was a biologist. (laughs) Descartes was a great mathematician. Leibniz, too. So it's not that I'm doing something strange. Of course, biology, by the 1960s, was on that upsurge, away from being the poor sister of the physical sciences. And it was on its way to being as important as it is today. The DNA model had come out in in, uh, 53. Uh, Evolutionary biology was now moving forward with Mm. people like Bill Hamilton writing about kin selection and ideas like this. So characterize the field for me. What what, what is the natural divisions of philosophy of biology? Well, I think there are really two big divisions. What one might call philosophy of biology and what I've heard called by, the I think, the rather ugly name of biophilosophy, but I prefer philosophy of nature. One way of doing philosophy of biology is you're a kind of upper-level biologist. You're a kind of metabiologist. The, the biologist looks, let's say, 
classification, looks at different organisms and the seas differences and tries to work out what the differences are and then relates this to evolution and so on. The philosopher of biology would say, what kind of criteria does the scientist use? Why, for instance, does one separate out bonobos from humans and thinks that fundamental in your classification in a way you would not separate out males from females? Mm -hmm. I mean, the difference between men and women are at least as big <laughs> as the differences between humans and bonobos, and yet one rather than the other. So the philosopher of biology is asking, I think, important and intelligent questions. The other way, uh, let's call, I call it philosophy of nature, but it, it's a, that's a little broader than biology, is taking the science, biology in my case, and applying it to philosophy and saying, what about epistemology? What about ethics? What about some of these sorts of issues? Can we find insights, let's say, in the fact that you, Robert, are a, a modified monkey, I might say so, <laughs> very nice one, but a but never, monkey nevertheless, rather than modified mud? In other words, I'm interested in saying the fact that we are modified monkeys, what does this mean for our moral sense or something like that. In the first category, what, what are some of the other questions that would be in this meta approach other than demarcation questions, mm -hmm. which, which seem important, but of an older kind of uh, science? The best of all is, is evolutionary theory. Why the hell should we accept a story about dinosaurs and these sorts of things when we never ever see them? Mm -hmm. Why is it reasonable to believe okay. that we are modified monkeys rather than modified so mud. So the deep philosophy of, of, of what, what are your assumptions and what are the Absolutely. philosophical... And to what extent can we explain what we see here in terms of unseen entities? So, right. as I say, I think a lot of philosophy of biology is, is distinctive in being about biology, but it, it, at heart, it's philosophy of science. How do you then demarcate between the philosophical fields? The way you've defined your second category of, of philosophy of biology, you're, you're subsuming a lot of other fields that a lot of philosophers spend their whole lives on. Yes, but the point is, Robert, you forget I'm a philosopher. Yeah. I'm a philosopher first. So you say, how do I demarcate? This has been done for me. I mean, you know, I'm part of the legacy of philosophy. So issues like the starry heavens above and the moral law within us, Kant said, are, are, are demarcated for me. So this is why I'm so interested in picking up issues. You, you mentioned the mind. Uh, one of the things I'm particularly interested in at the moment is to what extent does evolution throw views on philosophies of mind? William Kingdom Clifford said, if you're an evolutionist, you ought to be a panpsychist. Oh, wow. You ought to think that even the molecules have mind at some level. Now, Here's a good question. I mean, this is a philosophical question. What is the nature of mind? But of course, you're bringing biology. Is evolutionary theory in any sense relevant, as Clifford said, or is it totally irrelevant, as, for instance, Thomas Nagel said, in Mind and Cosmos? Yes, so you can't get deeper or more exciting philosophical questions than these. Michael develops philosophy of biology as a philosopher, and he describes two categories of the new field. The first is where philosophy asks meta-questions about biology, encouraging clarity and rigorous thinking. The second is where biology addresses philosophical questions, such as mind, morality, knowledge, even religion. If this is a philosopher's approach to philosophy of biology, what would be a biologist's approach? 
I should speak with a philosopher of biology who is, first and foremost, a biological scientist, who starts with the discoveries of biology and Darwinian evolution. Attending the Notre Dame conference is the distinguished evolutionary biologist Francisco Ayala. Originally a Dominican priest, Francisco is university professor of biological sciences and of philosophy at the University of California, Irvine. To Francisco, which issues are fundamental? Francisco, define for me the purpose of philosophy of biology and then something of the structure of the kinds of questions that it asks. The process of evolution in particular has tremendous philosophical implications because if we want to understand what we are as human beings, a fundamental component has to be that we originated by a gradual process and that our ancestors of uh, a few million years ago were not human. And in fact, our own species came out only very recently, perhaps as recently as 100,000 years ago mm. in tropical Africa and from there colonized the rest of the world. So what is a human being? In order to understand what is a human being, a philosophical question, mm. you need to understand our origin. You have to understand many other things because the process of evolution has implications with respect to what we are not only in the general way, but explaining the details. I mean, think, for example, of the transmission of signals that go from our senses to, to our mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that the experiences that we have when we touch something or when we see something, mm -hmm. that those things get incorporated from our senses to our nerves and go to the brains. Mm -hmm. And it's in the brains where we ex have these experiences that we call qualia these individual sensations, but how chemical and electrical signals, mostly chemical signals, become transformed in color, shapes, and the like, is a philosophical question. Yes. And the more fundamental question to yet is how out of all this experience emerges the mind, the person, what mm. we mm. have as a unitary view of ourselves. Mm something that exists in us. How does that emerge? Well, that's a very fundamental philosophical right. question, but we have to incorporate the biological knowledge and integrate it into our philosophical view yeah. of how the mind works. So there are other kinds of questions that um, uh, a, a philosophy of biology would ask? The questions of uh, morality of ethics, because understanding what we are biologically and how we have common origins, and the very little diversity between different populations of the world, mm -hmm. so-called uh, races or uh, ethnic groups, uh, obviously has social implications, has ethical implications. You know, we see ourselves as being very different, say, those of us who are so-called Caucasians from, say, people from Central Africa or people from Japan and China. But if you were to take the whole genetic variation of the whole human population, which has a lot, 85% of that whole variation of the world can be found in a little village. <laughs> then when you look at different towns in the same continent, you have 6% more. Oh, and you have only 9% more when you look at the whole oh, world. Wow. Well, if so much of the variation is local, why is it that we see it as very different. It is because the adaptations which we observe, which have to do with skin color, 
and uh, configuration of the hair, configuration of the body, have a lot to do with the colonization of the world. You know, the, our ancestors in Africa were definitely people with very dark skin. You need that. You live in a place where there is a lot of sun because the sun causes various forms of cancer, melanomas, and the like. As these people colonize, say, the temperate zones and eventually places like Scandinavia and, and, and uh, Alaska and the like, people with lighter skin were favored by natural selection because they needed the sun. There's much less sun, much less exposure to the ultraviolet light of the sun, which we need to synthesize vitamin D. Vitamin D is synthesized in the deeper layers of the skin and is done through the action of ultraviolet light. A person with very dark skin living in Scandinavia oh, yeah. cannot do very well because cannot synthesize vitamin D. So that, that, that is a deep philosophical conclusion that comes from biology because it really shows the commonality of human beings, even though superficially we see things that look tr very different, that much all of the differences are much deeper and that things that we don't see. Yeah, yeah. that's correct. I think that these difference, differences are very superficial. Mm -hmm. They are real, but affect very little yeah. of what we are. And in the majority of the processes that are controlled by genes, all humans are identical. I'm going to give you a... Francisco focuses on evolution and its explanatory powers, addressing diverse questions, including the genetic commonality of the human family and the physical workings of the human mind. He alludes as well to the biological basis of morality and ethics. But morality and ethics are traits of the mind, different from the pure physicality of human genetics and sensory perception. What's an evolutionary account of how morality and ethics came about? I speak with the organizer of the Quest for Consonance Conference, Celia Dian Drummond. With doctorates in science, plant physiology, and theology, Celia's director of Notre Dame Center for Theology, Science, and Human Flourishing. Celia, what are the kinds of questions that would be under a philosophy of biology that are unique and original kinds of questions that, that can be asked, and particularly looking at it from your theological perspective? I, I think one of the most interesting questions is the evolution of, of wisdom. Where does it come from? I've thought about this question for must be 10 or 15 years. I was trying to find some evolutionary biologists and, and those maybe working with other animals to look at that question with me to try and sort of discover are there any sort of traces in other animals or in early in the evolutionary history that might look something like wisdom, which I define or understand as, as being about very complex complex relationships between things and how to understand what that ability to have those social kind of relationships might mean. So not simply love relationships, but relationships as such. So it's really fundamental to understanding how a community works. So we were trying to find, a, if you like, a baseline definition of wisdom that would work both theologically, but also work for evolutionary anthropologists. In Aquinas, for example, there are two different kinds of wisdom. 
there's this wisdom proper, which is about the relationship of everything with everything else, including God, and that's the virtue of wisdom. But there's also practical wisdom, which is the particular skill you need to deliberate, judge, and act. Mm. And so both of those elements were likely to be important in the evolution of wisdom. And so one of the first tasks we, we did was to try and not look at the archaeological record of early hominins just as a collection of bones, but try and imagine their internal world as well as their external world. In other words, mm. what was going on when they started making beads to go around mm. their necks? What was going on when they dabbed red ochre on their faces and other parts of their body and maybe shells and so on? Something cha was changing in, in their minds in a way that was about their ability to form these very different relationships. And so we, we started to, to map these different um, signals, if you like, of something happening in, in, a, in a cognitive sense that, that indicated some sort of complexity. Now, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Sloss said, it, that said something interesting about wisdom. He said that it was the, the ability to uh, judge a right between different possible cultural expressions of, of, of a social sphere. So it was like a sort of meta, a meta ability and over and above it. When we were trying to think about how to look at the evolution of wisdom, we were trying to scale back a little bit from that, what you say, a sort of grander metaphysical narratives to something much more practical. And we found something really surprising, which is why this research has proved extremely interesting. And that if you go back to, to way far back in the evolutionary record to something like 500,000 years ago and even beyond that, you find early signals of, of acts that hominins did that suggest some sort of mental complexity. Even though the standard narrative amongst evolutionary anthropologists is that we change from anatomically modern humans to cognitively modern humans all in one go around 200,000 years ago. Whereas these other signals were happening much, much earlier than that. And gradually you get more and more and more of them building up. So in order to have this uh, research project make sense in tracing the history of wisdom, uh, you can't have this big break where you have humans on one end and, and, and animals on the other. You have to have a, a clean continuum. There's no step function break in it, which is a, a, a traditional uh, teaching of uh, Christianity. I would say there's a continuum, but there's still distinctiveness. So in other words, when we were looking at this, we were looking at hominins. Now hominins uh, is the period after the, the, the split between, between humans and, and other primates happened eight million years ago. We're looking at relatively recent history after that branch had split, all the species we were looking at were homo species. So, so I see it as part of the homo family. What's more interesting, I think, is to see the Imago Dei say is, is applying, you know, much further back than we previously supposed. It's not just- Image uh, of God. Yeah. Yes, not just uh, the image of God is not just homo sapiens necessarily. Maybe it was further back than that. But what I see is like anything else, the evolution of wisdom happen gradually. So you don't suddenly get this extremely complex capacity, especially the capacity to relate to the divine, all at once. What happens is you get these intimations of that possibility, and then eventually it clusters together into this more sophisticated cognitive ability, uh, which I think is the ability to receive God, um, as it were, in revelation. Celia sees wisdom as a marker in the evolution of human beings, signifying the emergence of cognitive powers and a moral sense. It's an example of how philosophy of biology sifts evidence and shapes theories. No sudden jumps in the progressive development of wisdom, 
It's a continuum, she says, but still there's distinctiveness. But can the clustering of cognitive capacities mean that emerging wisdom does not refute traditional religious views of human origins? Projecting our contemporary sense of wisdom into the phylogenetic or anthropological record of proto-wisdom is a challenge. How much more so is the leap from proto-wisdom to the capacity to receive God as in revelation? One way to try to make such a move is to try to extend Darwinian explanations to social, psychological, and even theological matters. I meet Louis Caruana, a Jesuit priest who is Dean of the Philosophy Faculty of the Gregorian University in Rome and Professor of Philosophy at the Vatican Observatory. Louis, how can the questions that you address in evolution and Darwinism and Catholic doctrine, how can those reflect on uh, the importance of a philosophy of biology? In my studies, I concentrated mainly on how evolution explanation can be applied to explain religion itself and whether such explanations are plausible, are useful, and so on. What is a, an evolution explanation? Let's start there. Of course, to have an evolution explanation, you need something to explain, of course, and then one of the attributes has to be hereditary, it, it has to be significant for survival, and it has to have some kind of random mutations. If you have that sort of thing, and the system is self-replicating, then you have actually um, natural selection in the long run. So when uh, that kind of mindset that philosopher needs to identify some aspect of the religious phenomenon which has these characteristics. And there are a number of suggestions here. I mean, one of them is that uh, the religious phenomenon is all dependent on some primordial agency detecting device that we may have. That's, that means when we see movement, for instance, we associate the movement with an agent. Now, we may be hypersensitive to this, as if we are assuming that there are agents when there aren't. Now, if you consider that as a unit of explanation, it seems to suggest that in the long run, groups, let's say, of hominids and the early evolution of the human species, groups who had that trait of seeing agency or assuming there is agency, exaggerating in this kind of uh, assumption, it, it has a survival value in the long run because it's better to assume that there may be an agent rather than there, the, when there is one. As we say, a false positive is much worse Excellent. than a false negative. Excellent. Yeah, that's, that's the point. And um, some uh, philosophers try to suggest that because of this argument and similar arguments, then religious belief as we have it today is somewhat undermined. Now, I have doubts about that kind of a conclusion. Even if we accept the cogency of that kind of explanation, that there may be traits that have an evolutionary origin in this sense or similar senses, I would say it doesn't necessarily mean that religion is undermined. Yeah, but, but I think the, the point of philosophy of biology is such that this is a relevant question. You can argue that a religion is not undermined. Somebody else can say a biologist, an atheist, is, is undermined. Is, is both interesting, but, but it, it, it becomes a, a question under, a big question under philosophy of biology. That makes sense. Philosophy of biology is usually philosophy for biology. Well, what we're talking about here is what biology uses as its explanation, whether it's plausible in other areas. So 
that kind of critique of religion usually says, you see, so religion has nothing to do with God. Religion has nothing to do with the supernatural. Mm -hmm. It is actually just a natural phenomenon right. because it's explainable in this way. Right. Now, some religious people may find that very difficult to uh, accept because they want to see religion as a, a non-natural phenomenon. But I would not have great problems with that myself. I mean, if religion has a natural origin, in fact, it's a positive fact that we may be discovering that in fact, being religious is, is part of our bodily makeup in a sense, that the evolutionary mechanism has given us actually some a kind of kickstart, if you like, <laughs> in the direction of discovering more about God and so on. I wouldn't like to kind of squeeze religion on that particular aspect only. But my main point is that if there are naturalistic explanations of religiosity of this kind, it shouldn't be a great worry for the religious believer. Philosophy of biology offers new ways of thinking about biology. I see it operating in five areas. One, using philosophy to enable progress in biology as a science, such as clarifying the nature of biological evidence, models, and arguments. Two, using philosophy to assess applications of biology, such as genetic testing, treatment of animals, astrobiology. Three, using philosophy to discern specific biological puzzles, such as how did altruism evolve and how does environment affect race? Four, using biology to address perennial problems in philosophy, such as the nature of mind, morality, and wisdom. Five, using biology to analyze the nature of religion and belief systems in general. Although religion could be classified as a perennial problem in philosophy, I opt for a separate category because the intersection of biology and religion is a deep probe of the human condition. Philosophy of biology, I admit, is new to me. I'm just getting started, getting closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.